Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of a series on governing during pandemic. We're talking with local elected officials, public officials, uh, and community activists to learn more about how local governments and organizations are responding and adapting to our shifting needs during this public health crisis. Casey, one of the things we've been talking about a lot is how the pandemic has impacted already vulnerable communities. Can you help our listeners understand kind of some of the conversations we've been having? Right. So one of the things that happened pretty early on in the pandemic was that there were these stay-at-home orders, right, and these shutdowns. And part of the shutdowns, uh, a, a pretty concerning, I think for many folks, part of the shutdown was that we were closing businesses. Uh, and, and these businesses were primarily those that provide services to other people. So, right, restaurants, bars, uh, but even hotels, uh, a lot of places where folks are employed that don't have a high income or or a lot of savings really also to kind of bolster them against if there is some sort of economic hardship. So the problem with that is that these are folks that are already in very vulnerable, fragile states. And some may already have been uptaking, uh, you know, food stamps or the supplemental nutrition uh, uh, aid program. And they also could potentially be partaking in what are known as food banks. And these are local organizations that essentially have partnerships with other uh, organizations, many of which are grocery food stores, to collect food that would be expiring soon and, and to actually give it out to members of the community that are in need of food, right? Because we know that food stamps only go so far and, and families cannot make it an entire month just on the allotment of uh, benefits that they get from, from food stamps alone. So we thought, who better to talk to than somebody that runs a local food bank? And that leads us to us being very lucky and that today we're going to be talking with Katie Carver-Reed. And she's the director of uh, Network Partners and Programs at the Akron Canton Regional Food Bank. In her role, she's responsible for the food bank's partnerships with more than 500 hunger relief programs. Uh, she's also responsible for the food bank's direct service programs and oversees government compliance related to food distribution. She earned her BA in political science and philosophy with a minor in leadership studies from Baldwin Wallace College. Katie, it's so great to have you with us today. Thank you for coming. Thanks so much for having me. So to get us started, and for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about the Akron Canton Regional Food Bank, some of the services that you provide, all the, that fun stuff? Sure. Uh, so the Akron Canton Regional Food Bank is a nonprofit that serves eight counties in Northeast Ohio. Let's see if I can name them all off the top of my head. Carroll, Holmes, Medina, Portage, Stark, Summit, Tuscarawas, and Wayne. You are listening. You're from one of those counties. This food bank is your food bank. Food banks are organizations that rescue surplus food from the grocery industry, from farmers, from other manufacturers, and make sure that it gets into the hands of people that need it, food insecure individuals. So that's the work uh, of the food bank. We as a food bank have been around since 1982, but the concept of food banking goes back uh, to the 70s. Uh, a gentleman named John Van Hangel in uh, Arizona, I was able to visit the first food bank ever uh, and learn more about his story, which is really exciting. But he was just a community member. And one day I was at the grocery store and saw somebody 
in the dumpster outside of the grocery store looking for food. Uh, and he realized that grocery stores were throwing out perfectly good because maybe it was getting close to the date or something like that. And so he started the concept of food banking uh, and went on to start a food bank there and then also helped found Feeding America, which is the national association of food banks. And now there are more than 200 food banks in the United States serving every single county in the country. And ours, like I mentioned, serves the eight counties in Northeast Ohio that I just mentioned. Katie, what drew you to this work? When I was eight, I wanted to be president. I learned to play saxophone because Bill Clinton was president. And I was like, that's the path. You learn this instrument and then you become president. So a path that I've since abandoned, but I had, you know, an interest as just our government and how it functions. Uh, I grew up in a low-income household. And so I saw directly how government policy affected my family's life. We got subsidies for our rent. We were on food assistance. Uh, I got free lunch as a kid. And so I was very consciously aware of how other people, whether it be our government, you know, learning later taxpayers were supplementing my life. Uh, and so when I went to college, I knew that I wanted to study political science. I wanted to understand our government, how it functions and work. And then I studied philosophy because I think that it complements that. It's about how we treat one another and what that means for who we are, what our souls are, uh, right? Who we are as a society. And so I you know, thought that those two things complemented each other. Uh, and as you know, I sought out what I wanted to do kind of in my career as a, an adult, I kind of stumbled into food banking. Uh, and I realized that, you know, I, I have a connection to this work. My family got food from a network partner of the food bank. Uh, my father has struggled in a lot of ways and uh, experienced homelessness. And the shelter that he lived in gets food uh, from this food bank. You know, the food bank has been a part of my life since before I worked here. Ultimately, what I wanted to do was give back to people that have experienced the things I've experienced. I know uh, directly the struggle and kind of the judgment that you can feel, the shame that comes with not having things and people knowing that you don't have them. To be able to be in this work, I feel like I bring a different perspective to what the people that we're trying to serve are experiencing because uh, in you know my own way, I've been there even though I've not been. Everyone has their own story and uh, affects people differently. But that's why, you know, has drawn me here. I've been here for eight years now. So, uh, you know, the majority of my adult professional career has been as a food banker. And and it's, yeah, the, you know, a great privilege of my life to be able to do that. Now, you mentioned uh, food assistance, and I'm sure our listeners are familiar with this program, you know, quote unquote, food stamps, uh, which is accurately known as SNAP what they are, who uses them, how to qualify, but maybe they don't understand how food banks complement these kinds of programs. So why is it that food banks are essential in this kind of system? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and one that's commonly asked, uh, you know, and, and commonly not understood. Uh, SNAP, you know, the, the term for food stamps is the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And I think the supplemental part of that is really important. It's not meant to provide everybody's food uh, that's on the program for the entire month. Uh, data shows that SNAP benefits run out about two to three weeks into the month uh, from when they're issued. So two to three weeks after they're issued, your SNAP benefits are gone. Um, and so there are people, uh, a lot of people in the community that still need help after their SNAP benefits run out uh, because they're paying for other things. They're paying for transportation to get to their job. They're paying for their medications. They're paying rent. They're paying childcare. Uh, and so the difference that people, you know, have to choose between am I paying childcare or am I paying for food? Uh, food banks existing allows them to make that choice a little easier. They don't have to worry about the cost of food. They can go to a local food program to get that food and then use the limited funds that they do have 
on other things. The other thing that I'll mention just about food banks is that uh, the data in our area shows that about half of the people that are estimated to be food insecure, uh, meaning they don't know uh, or don't have the resources to ensure that they know where their next meal is coming from, aren't eligible for SNAP. Uh, SNAP is 130% of the poverty level or below. And if you make 131% of the federal poverty level, you can't get SNAP at all. Uh, It's a hard cut. Uh, And so there are about half of the people estimated to be food insecure that make slightly too much to get SNAP. And so charitable food assistance uh, through the Food Banks Network is the only means of, uh, you know, food that they could get separate from, you know, a government program that they're not eligible for. So so food banks fill in the gaps for people uh, either way, whether or not they're eligible for government assistance or not, uh, to, you know, make sure they have the nutrition that they need to go about, you know, the things that they need to do in their life. The work that you all are doing is so important. And I know that a lot of that work is also, you know, is is possible because of partnerships, right? So the food bank has a lot of partnerships to deliver these services. Can you can you talk a little bit about those partnerships and, in some ways, how those partnerships came to be? How did they develop? Uh, for anybody that's into uh, kind of wonky, maybe boring uh, government policy, uh, food banks are in some ways built on IRS tax code, which I know sounds uh, a little odd. The donations of food that, you know, come from the grocery store, from the farmer, from the manufacturer, uh, they get a tax break, uh, a tax write-off for making that donation to the food bank. And so the IRS is involved uh, because it, you know, results in some, uh, you know, tax relief there. So in order to establish partnerships uh, with the food bank, organizations have to be a 501c3 public charity as recognized by the IRS, or they have to be a church uh, recognized by the IRS. So there are some criteria of, you know, the IRS's definition of a church and proving that that's the case. So that's sort of the, you know, first and most important threshold uh, for us to establish partnerships is that they have to meet one of those two criteria. Uh, Otherwise, you know, there's a lot of other things we have to figure out uh, to be able to partner with organizations like schools or government entities, uh, that sort of thing are challenging because they don't meet those two requirements. Uh, So those partnerships are based uh, in that. And then we have to vet a variety of things. Uh, food safety is extremely important uh, in the world of food banking. And so there are food safety certification courses uh, that partners take uh, to become part of the food bank. And, you know, some training just about, you know, how do you serve people? How does that paperwork work? Uh, because we get food from the government, uh, from the USDA and from the state of Ohio, uh, there are compliance and regulatory things involved in that as well. And so we have to do trainings on that. But really, uh, you know, what those partnerships come down to is community organizations that recognize a need uh, in their community for people to have food. And so our job is to help people, uh, you know, shepherd them through that process to be able uh, to partner with us, which is what uh, my team does. A lot of those organizations are churches, uh, and that is, you know, in the history of food banking, a lot of faith-based communities uh, have you know, in their own scriptures, things about, you know, the importance of feeding people and the importance of serving uh, low-income people. And so a lot of our network is, uh, you know, based in their own kind of community of faith. And so, uh, you know, we help them figure out, you know, how to serve the public. Uh, We have about 500 uh, community partners that operate food pantries, which are where you can go and pick up groceries. They operate hot meal sites, which are opportunities for fellowship for people to sit and, uh, you know, break bread together. Uh, Backpack programs are another one people hear a lot about where kids can get uh, you know, food for the weekend when they don't have access to their free breakfast and lunch on those school days. Uh, and then, you know, shelters, residential programs, lots of different programs, uh, you know, so long as they are feeding people, 
uh, and can meet some of those basic, you know, government criteria that are beyond the food bank's control. Uh, you know, we work to establish those partnerships in that. So, Katie, I mean, this isn't a surprise. Obviously, watching the news, there are stories everywhere about new approaches that businesses and governmental organizations and non-governmental organizations have adapted to try to serve their specific communities during this time of, you know, stay-at-home orders and COVID-19. How has this changed your work? And I, I guess specifically, I'm thinking about, right, your network of support, um, but maybe it's changed it in other ways too. Yeah, uh, the network of hunger relief partners that work with us are primarily volunteers and oftentimes are elderly. And so they're the vulnerable population that's being told to stay home. Uh, they're the ones running our charitable food programs in the community. And so, uh, you know, it was a challenge and we were concerned uh, for them uh, and their safety. And so our food bank advocated uh, and our CEO, Dan, advocated really strongly to remove as many of the requirements as possible uh, to make that a smooth and seamless process. Uh, so we were able to get a waiver of intake processes in our state. Uh, normally when a, food, when a recipient goes to get food at a program for groceries, uh, they have to bring their photo ID and they have to sign a paper saying that they earn below 200% um, of the federal poverty level, which is the guidance for charitable food. And that process requires you touching their ID, looking at it, handing it back to them, maybe handing a pen and paper back and forth. Uh, there is a, an electronic way to do that. So then they're touching the same keyboard you touched, you know, those sorts of things. Um, all concerns for not only the recipient, but the person, you know, operating the program. And so we were able to successfully in Ohio get a waiver of that process which allowed a lot of our programs that would have closed otherwise to stay open. Uh, so I'll say, you know, in talking to food bank colleagues around the country, our food bank and our community are really blessed that most of our programs stayed open and figured out a way to do a drive-through distribution or to do a curbside pickup or something like that, where a lot of other communities didn't have that same kind of bolstering of resources. Uh, so I think, you know, we're really blessed in that way. And myself and my team have spent a lot of time working with our community partners to try to be uh, thought partners in how to utilize their space, how to utilize their parking lots uh, to make sure that they were being safe for themselves and for the people that they serve. So the one you know, people may be seeing on the news a lot, I know there was a big article uh, nationally about the lines uh, you know, going down the highway. Drive-through distributions have become extremely popular. Uh, you know, no different than you at the grocery store waiting in your car. Maybe, you know, they come pop your trunk and put it in for you. We've been doing uh, that at our food bank. Uh, food banks typically, you know, distribute to community organizations that then distribute to people in need. So there's a bit of a divide between our building here. Uh, we're kind of the supplier to, you know, community organizations that give out food. But over the years, we've gotten more involved in direct service. And we've been doing a distribution for about a year uh, from our building once a month. And we've ramped that up to every other week uh, and are looking at, you know, the frequency of that going in to the summer months. Uh, and it's all contactless. Uh, so we have a drive-through model that we've worked uh, to figure out. And, you know, surprisingly, we've not had a, a super long line, uh, which has been great. We've been able to move really quickly. At its height, we've served 1,800 families in about a two-hour period. Uh, so it moves really fast. Uh, but we also, you know, try to make sure that it's a welcoming process for a lot of people. Uh, this is the first time they've ever sought food assistance uh, at one of our distributions. It was about 60% of the people that came had never 
been in the charitable food system before, you know, based on the data we were collecting at the time. Uh, and so we want to make sure that they still are getting, um, you know, that, that love and that acceptance and that smile uh, from us because, you know, the, the transaction of handing somebody food is about more than the food itself. Uh, and so we've been working to find a way to quicken the pace while still keeping the connection, uh, you know, that human connection uh, between one another. So, so yeah, so drive throughs um, have been really popular for us. Um, at our food bank, too, we uh, were blessed to work with United Way of Summit County and 211 to do home deliveries. So DoorDash, uh, as a you know corporation, donated deliveries and their driver's time. And so we were able to work with 211 so that people that were especially vulnerable, that maybe had no other uh, you know, family support or friend support that could go and get food for them. They were homebound. Maybe they were self-quarantined for some reason. Uh, and so I believe we've done close to a thousand deliveries uh, with DoorDash thus far. Uh, so, you know, just in terms of, you know, trying to be different and find ways uh, to work within the requirements that we have, but also to meet people where they are um, and their needs has been something that we've been uh, doing and, and learning, which is, you know, it's all different now for all of us. Uh, and it's no different with food banking. So it's been interesting. It, that's amazing. The work that you all are doing and adapting, pivoting, thinking strategically about how to partner. I'm wondering how the food bank works with local governments, maybe either the, the cities or the, the counties uh, where you're located. How do you work? Do you work in collaboration with them? Are you in regular communication? What does that relationship look like? Yeah, our uh, relationships with uh, local and county governments, you know, state government, that sort of thing, um, are extremely important, especially, uh, you know, now we're in regular communication. I'm going to call weekly with our local job and family services uh, department, with Summit County Public Health, uh, you know, as two examples of government entities. Also, um, you know, Akron Police Department uh, to help us. The State Highway Patrol has been coming and helping us with just traffic flow. Uh, you know, the sort of things that we haven't had to think about, you know, if we have long lines of thousands of cars coming, you, you want your local police department to have a heads up of why there's going to be a traffic jam, maybe, uh, you know, somewhere close to your building. And so, uh, you know, we've been collaborating a lot with our local governments, um, our partners out in the network, you know, in Medina County, as an example, uh, Feeding Medina County is one of our partners, and they utilize the local fairgrounds. So they're working with their county government to ensure that they are allowed to use that property, that they're doing so safely, that they're working with their local police department. Uh, we at the food bank get some funding from uh, Job and Family Services through TANF funding, so Temporary Assistance to Needy Families. Uh, and so we've been working with them on some TANF funding to get additional food uh, into the hands of families with children. And then through Title 20 funding for seniors, also doing some senior grocery deliveries as well. So, uh, you know, we're funding partners in that way, uh, receiving additional support as more people are in need of food assistance right now. Uh, but also we're, you know, thought partners in that as well, uh, you know, leveraging their relationships with local entities as well to identify, you know, where are their high areas of need. Uh, you know, what senior high-rise complexes maybe, you know, are closed right now or not open to the public. They're not letting the seniors leave maybe uh, out of, you know, their own concern for their safety. And so really, you know, leaning on them to say, we have these partnerships in the community. This is what we know. Uh, but we also recognize that we don't know everything uh, that's going on in the community. And we don't have all of the relationships 
uh, with every single, you know, community organization. And so really working closely with them, you know, is another example kind of of collaboration with them and with the health department as well. Uh, so with the health department, we identified um, some women that are pregnant right now, again, you know, kind of a special vulnerable population that needs some food assistance. Uh, and so working to get, you know, grocery deliveries to them too. Uh, so yeah, working really closely with local, uh, you know, city, county government to make sure that uh, they understand what it is that we're doing, that they understand what the need is and how we're addressing it, uh, but also that they know that they can call us and come to us. Uh, so if they have ideas, if they know of you know particular areas or particular populations that are especially in need, we can find ways to collaborate um, in that as well. And we've been you know lucky to have a county government and job and family services department that works really closely with us uh, and finds ways to provide funding when that's the barrier uh, to making things happen. So it's very apparent that the food bank has quickly uh, adapted in many ways through whether it's the drive-through or, or working with DoorDash to be able to get food to people. But are there other services? So I'm thinking mostly like the Hot Meals program that it's a lot more challenging to kind of adapt and deliver using a social distancing approach. So how has that affected the delivery of these services? Yeah, you know the delivery of uh, those types of services has been more challenging. Uh, you know, in the hot meal example, we've talked to them about, uh, you know, there, there's a food safety concern and keeping the food hot. If it's a hot meal, it needs to stay hot when it gets from place to place. And uh, if you were used to just taking it out of the oven and sticking it on the table and letting people eat, uh, you can't really do that anymore. Uh, there are issues in having access to packaging materials. You were putting that food on a plate and now it needs to be in a styrofoam container or something like that if it's being taken. Uh, so we've been able to leverage some donations to get things like that in for partners that wouldn't normally have access to those. Um, but a lot of the partners have transitioned either to a cold meal, so kind of like a sack lunch sort of situation uh, that doesn't, you know, have the same concern for the internal kind of hot temperature uh, that other, you know, types of uh, cold meals would have. Um, or they've been giving out groceries and doing little recipes for the person of, you know, here's like a meal kit almost, uh, and you can cook it, you know, yourself at home if you have the means to do that, which not everybody does. Uh, and so, you know, they've, they've had to adapt really based on kind of the population that they were serving. Is there an expectation that they home, have a home where they have electricity on that they can use their stove uh, or that they have a microwave, that they have a can opener? Is that, you know, the population you're working with? Or are we talking about a population that, um, you know, is maybe in some ways more vulnerable, that is transient, that may be homeless? Uh, the the meals that you give or the food that you give them and the expectation you have for how they can prepare themselves is a little different. Uh, so it's been, in some ways, I think, more challenging for programs like that to find a way uh, to still do that. And a lot of, uh, you know, in my opinion, of what Hot Meals are about is that fellowship and that human interaction, which can't really uh, happen right now uh, in the way that it had. And so I think, you know, for programs like that, uh, that's been especially challenging. Uh, another one that was hard to figure out is backpack programs. Those are the programs that I mentioned. The kids are at school on every Friday. They get their bag and they take them the weekend. Kids aren't there anymore. They're at home learning, uh, you know, with kind of the discrepancies and the resources of schools throughout our eight county area. Some of them have access to chats like this. Uh, my nephew, I'm from Tuscarawas County. Uh, my nephew is going and picking up packets of papers at school and doing them at home and delivering them back because, you know, not everyone uh, has access to the internet uh, in Tuscarawas County to be able to do something like this. Uh, and so so getting that food to kids like that, uh, you know, is more challenging. Um, and 
even though, you know, in Akron, we're blessed that Akron Public Schools is amazing uh, and has been able to provide meals to kids uh, so long as they can get to the common point to pick it up. And the example, again, of, you know, Tuscarawas County, where uh, it's rural and you can't just walk to your school. Your school might be 10 miles away from where you live. Um, the bus isn't going around. You can't get on the bus and put all the kids on the bus. You know, the, the limitations of serving people in uh, more rural or remote settings is uh, challenging. And so for backpack programs, that's been especially hard to figure out. How do you reach their parents? How do you get uh, this food to those families? And so they found different ways to try to work around that, home deliveries. Uh, you know, if the school can give that information, there are privacy concerns too. Typically, those programs don't know who those kids are. They know nothing about them except that they needed food. So to be able to take it to their home, you have to know who they are and what their address is and those sorts of things. There are privacy barriers uh, to getting that information. So um, so grocery distributions, uh, you know, in some way are the easiest uh, to figure out because you tell people, here's where we are for this period of time, I'm going to hand you groceries. Uh, those other types of programs provide uh you know, a different type of service in a different way. And so they're more challenging to navigate and figure out. Uh, but a lot of them have, you know, worked with their local school district, uh, worked with the families directly. Uh, you know, when school closed, there was a day notice. And so to try to figure those things out, you didn't get a lot of a heads up uh, that school wasn't coming anymore. And so a lot of those programs did the best to provide a lot of shelf-stable food at one time uh, while balancing the fact that a child is carrying it. And so you can't give them, you know, 40 50 pounds of food, you know, those balances were hard to figure out. Uh, and again, our role um, here at the food bank has been to try to help community programs figure out how to do those things uh, and to provide resources. So we've provided uh, more resources to our network of hunger relief partners than we ever have um, in the eight years that I've been here. Uh, my team has spent more time going out and being directly at those distributions to provide just an extra set of hands. Uh, or to go and just walk through the parking lot with them and say, okay, how do we figure this out? How do we use this space? Um, so you know, that's been our role here is really to, uh, to figure it out at the same time as them. In some ways, it's not like we do something uh, that they didn't. We all heard it at the same time at two o'clock on whichever day the governor said it. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it was so long ago, it feels like a year ago, but it was two months ago, probably. Uh, and so, so yeah, so that's been you know, for some of those types of programs, uh, a, a greater challenge and a greater challenge for us uh, to help them figure out uh, in some way too. But, uh, you know, a work in progress, maybe the regulation changes, or maybe we thought it was a good idea and then it didn't work, uh, which also happens all the time. Uh, even outside of coronavirus times, uh, you think an idea is a good one until you try it. Uh, and so that's been the nature of the work for us and for, you know, these countless volunteers out in the community trying to figure this all out to get food to people. The work that you are, I think I've repeated this like six times, but the work that you are doing is amazing. Um, and I, I, I just feel really lucky to be talking to you right now. Um, so you've alluded to this already, uh, but I, I want to ask about how you've seen COVID-19 exacerbate food insecurities. How has this reshaped the, the type and the amount of food people are, have access to, but also are you seeing kind of demographic shifts or is it, is it really in many ways just a numbers issue? What does kind of this change in, in food insecurity look like um, from your perspective? Yeah, you know, it's a really great question. And I think that we're just at the beginning of understanding what this is going to mean. Uh, and what this is going to look like. Our kind of, you know, response, our internal data, like when did we start responding to this? You know, uh, it's around March 16th. So we're, you know, getting close to about eight weeks in here. 
Um, I think that what we found um, is something that, you know, most of us have known uh, for a while. And it's that um, all of us are about two weeks away, uh, you know, one job loss further away from needing this food assistance. Uh, and that's been under the surface and something that we maybe all comfortably or uncomfortably just went about our lives dealing with for people working in industries that are service related. Uh, we know their incomes are less uh, than others and they were the first uh, to be laid off and hit by the closure of restaurants and hair salons and uh, those sorts of things. And so, um, you know, we've been seeing, I'd say right now I can say that it's just, you know, the, the vast increase in numbers. Uh, and I think that speaks to what society was like before all of this, which was how close to the line, uh, you know, our, our neighbors live to needing us. Uh, and I think that we've seen that the resources that exist for people when these moments come um, are more challenging to access uh, than maybe people realize. And so you have a large sector of our population that are also self-employed uh, that don't have access to the same supports and resources. And so they can come to the food bank. Uh, and so I think right now, like I said, you know, it's sort of a numbers game of uh, just a really uh, fast and large increase uh, in demand because we're the, the quickest to respond in some ways um, and the most agile, I think. Uh, you know, government systems... Uh, can't immediately build the capacity to process millions more unemployment applications. Uh, that's not how they're set up and they're not prepared for that. And none of us could have been. We didn't know. Uh, you know, the last time we dealt with an international pandemic was 1918. And so it's 100 years later uh, and none of us could have seen it coming. And so not all systems can just immediately respond uh, to an increase. And I think, uh, you know, from my perspective, seeing food banks around the country do exactly that really quickly um, speaks to our agility and our flexibility uh, and our, you know, as our director of operations here says, finding a way to yes. Like that's what food banks do. We find a way to yes. We figure it out because we care about people having food. But um, so that doesn't come without its challenges. I, you know, we're, we're seeing supply chain issues in the grocery industry and the food industry generally. Uh, so we're seeing a decline in our inventory. We're handing out food faster than it's coming in the back door. Uh, so we're not at a place where we're concerned about not having food. Uh, we're confident that it'll come back, uh, but we've never seen our warehouse this empty. We've never seen our inventory this low uh, because of that. And so, uh, you know, when we say there's enough food in this country to feed everyone, there is. Uh, but when packaging materials don't exist, so when you have lots of eggs and no cartons to put them in, which is an issue that, you know, our state is experiencing right now as an example, you know, those all present challenges. I mean, it's, it's incredible that you guys were able to scale up so quickly. And I mean, I've, I've packed a lot of food boxes myself, so I know what those warehouses look like. I can only imagine how much food you guys sped through in the last eight weeks. So how is it that you identify communities and neighborhoods that are in need? Is there a process that allows you to adapt quickly, but, you know, with some sense of equitability? to these shifting needs when you have this expansive, you know, demographic shift? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, our kind of guiding light, I guess, uh, you know, for our food bank is the concept of meeting the meal gap. So annually, Feeding America, like I mentioned earlier, you know, that National Association of Food Banks produces a report called Map the Meal Gap. 
and it looks at you know, a variety of factors and provides an estimate of the number of food insecure people in your service area. And it breaks it down by county, can break it down by census tract uh, to get a bit deeper of a dive of you know, where are food insecure people living and then how many meals are they missing. So we know these food insecure people can't provide all of their meals for themselves. What's that gap? How many meals do we need to provide annually so that we provided enough meals for everyone? And so we use that as our guiding light to say, where does this food need to go? Um, how are we meeting the gap or not meeting the gap in this community? Uh, that measure is not perfect. Uh, so we might provide enough food in the community, but maybe it's not in the right places. People may have transportation barriers, like I talked about, to access it. There's also, you know, the one that I talk about frequently that I don't have an answer for, but there is, uh, you know, the stigma and judgment that comes with being in need. And so that's a barrier to showing up to get food that we alone can't fix. And so we might provide enough food, but I can't, um, you know, ensure that that person feels comfortable going and getting it where it is. Uh, and so those are all kind of the factors that we look at and trying to figure out where does this food need to go? Uh, and then what partners exist in that community to distribute that food? Uh, our food bank, uh, you know, operates in kind of a, a partnership first modality. So is there a community partner that we can work with to do this uh, so that the food bank's not coming in and saying, we're the food bank and we're doing this for you community. And we don't live here and we don't know anybody here. Right. Uh, we want to work in partnership with the local community to say, how should this food be distributed? Where should it be distributed? What can we do to help you? And so we've really leaned in uh, in this moment to that, to bolstering our existing community partners, helping them stay open. Uh, you know, there are areas where we still need more partnerships. And my team actively goes and recruits. We get lists of every single church and nonprofit in that community and call them and say, hey, we're the food bank. We want to partner with you. You're in an area where we think people need more food. Can we at least have a conversation about you helping us do that? Uh, and so, you know, that is challenging to do. And especially right now, people aren't at their offices. Uh, but the community has been very generous. We've gotten a lot of calls from people saying, hey, I have a parking lot. If you want to use it, it's here. Nobody's. Nobody's at the mall. If you want to use our parking lot, you know, the mall offered uh, to let us distribute food from there. And the semi-truck drivers to go and distribute those and the volunteers to help with that. You know, there are a lot of logistics uh, that we have to figure out. But we've been working in areas where we feel like uh, there's a greater need with existing partners to bolster their resources. We've been delivering more food to them. We've been providing volunteer resources. Uh, at food banks across the state of Ohio, uh, the National Guard has been serving with us since the end of March, uh, which, you know, was a concern uh, for us. Uh, you know, we have Kent State University in our backyard. Uh, and so we were concerned about uh, how the community would feel about having the National Guard here. Uh, but I can say that, uh, you know, separate from uh, you know, what happened 50 years ago and uh, the difficulty that our community still struggles with and understanding that, uh, they've been fantastic and have really been helpful. We've sent them out to more than 100 community sites just to serve. And their job uh, is very clear. They, it is a humanitarian mission. They are here to pack food boxes and to hand them to people with a smile. And they've been doing that. Uh, so they've been all over our eight county service area delivering food, helping distribute food. And our food bank couldn't have stayed open without them. Uh, we have about 40 of them here. 
uh, and we were talking to them yesterday and just getting emotional. Like they're going to be gone at the end of May and we don't know what we're going to do. You know, like they've been a godsend. So, um, so, you know, we have to have those logistical resources to make this happen. And without them, a lot of that ability to bolster the existing community, uh, to send extra food to Wayne County, uh, to send extra food to Medina and Portage counties. You know, those are the three counties that, uh, you know, we felt like in some ways had the least access and least resources. So we've been investing a lot of staff time, National Guard time, and just our own transportation resources and food resources into those communities to provide greater access. Um, and so we, you know, identify that through that math and meal gap report, but then also just through uh, reports from community members saying, hey, I need a food program and we can't find one. Uh, you know, we know that that's an area we need to look into. We're getting a lot of calls and we have nowhere to direct people to. Uh, so a lot of, you know, some data and we have census data and tracks taking the resources that we have and strategically deciding where do we need to invest the resources that we have so we're not limitless in our resources. And so uh, it's a challenge to balance and figure that out, uh, but doing our best to, you know, direct resources where we can for communities that have less access and less ability to, you know, bring in dollars or people, you know, assets to, to meet the need. For our listeners, can you tell us how people can get involved? How can people volunteer and, you know, even, you know, alternative options, you know, during times of sheltering in place? Like, how could we... Uh, help the food bank or your community partner organizations during this time? Yeah, you know, I'd say the first that we always say typically is volunteer. Uh, but right now the food bank has suspended volunteers just out of everyone's safety. Uh, and so we're hopeful that in June we can welcome volunteers back with uh, safe social distancing and PPE and all those sorts of things. Um, but while you can't volunteer here right now, you could, uh, you know, visit and volunteer at one of our uh, network partner sites. Uh, so we have a list on our website of sites that have said that they need additional volunteer support and their contact information is on there. So if you go to the food bank's website, you could use, you know, or go to that resource. Um, if you have the financial means to donate, people can do that uh, from the comfort of their own home. They can donate to us uh, on our website directly. Uh, also, if you, know, you have a sewing machine and you want to donate personal protective equipment uh, to a site, uh, out in the community, you know, masks can be hard to come by. Um, people in the community that are distributing the food need them for themselves while they're doing the distribution, but also community members that are going out to pick up food for themselves need those. And so if you're somebody that, you know, knows how to sew, knows how to make those masks, I know that community sites are looking for them uh, and would be more than willing to accept them. Uh, and the last thing that I always mention uh, in ways to be helpful is just to be a nice person. Uh, and recognize that when people are struggling, when they are low income, when they need food assistance, uh, I'd say, you know, about 99% of the time, it is not their fault. Uh, you know, they've had a circumstance that was difficult uh, to overcome. They maybe didn't have the support system that they needed to overcome a situation. They lost their job and it wasn't their fault. Um, you know, I think that I hope one thing that we learned from the situation is that, um, you know, when people need support, uh, we're all going to know somebody by the end of this that probably needed food assistance at some point during it uh, or needed some other source of support. And we're going to know that those people didn't do something that was their fault that resulted in that happening. It was something beyond their control. Uh, and so I think if we can all be a bit more compassionate toward our neighbors that need our help that, you know, in some ways maybe aren't as fortunate as others, 
uh, that's a way to be helpful, you know, to, to not go on the internet and, uh, you know, be a social media warrior and complain about seeing somebody buy something with their snap card or whatever. Um, you know, let's assume positive intent on the part of the people around us. And let's assume that, um, you know, if they're struggling, that we can find a way to help them instead of judge them, uh, I think is the other way that doesn't take anything from you to be helpful in that, uh, except to just shift your mindset if, if that's the mindset that you had, uh, you know, prior to this. So I always just like to suggest, you know, the last way to be helpful is just to be kind. So speaking of success stories, I would love to hear from you some of your kind of favorite uh, success stories where maybe there was a challenge that you guys rose to Matt or there was uh, unanticipated needs that you were able to, you know, pull through, you know, to maybe even to your own surprise um, or drove innovation and some sort of, you know, service delivery. What are your favorite success stories out of this? Um, I think, you know, out of this situation right now, um, I think that the DoorDash story is one uh, for sure that, you know, I'm really proud of. Uh, DoorDash had, uh, it's my understanding, offered this type of donation to a few different communities. And our food bank in partnership with United Way 211 was the first to actually use them and find a way to figure it out. Uh, so we were quickly able to respond, figure out how to use the resource that was given to us to the benefit um, of our community members. And so I'm especially proud uh, that we were able to do that and figure it out and serve as many people as we have. Uh, I also think that, you know, our drive-through distribution that we host here at the building is one that I'm especially proud of. Uh, for years, our food bank didn't do any direct service. If people, uh, you know, came to our building, that's not what we did here. Uh, and we're able to do that now. And we work really collaboratively across multiple departments uh, to figure out how to make that work best for everyone. And I think that a strength of our food bank is that collaborative effort across the organization. That it's not fully owned by one person or one department that we're able to all bring our expertise to make up the mess of it can be. And I think uh, the, as smooth as it's gone and the way we've been able to figure that out um, and serve people both quickly, but still with kindness um, and with love is something that every day I experience it. Uh, you know, we had one yesterday. Uh, and it's just, it's a long day and it's exhausting. And I get like 20,000 steps in, in that day, uh, from just being at work. Uh, but it's one of, you know, my favorite days, uh, any day that we do it. So I'm especially proud of that. And I'd say that, um, you know, the other thing that surprised me and that I'm extremely proud of is how our hunger relief network has responded to this difficulty. Uh, like I mentioned, a lot of them, I'd say most of them are senior citizens. Most of them are not the most tech savvy uh, people. I think it's like a nice way to say that. Um, and a lot of them have been doing this for a really long time, uh, longer than I've been alive. One of them told me once uh, they've been in their food program since before I was born. Uh, and so they've done it in a way that worked best for them. Uh, and I don't blame them for that. It worked. So why change it? Uh, and and a lot of people, all of us in some ways are averse to change. Uh, but this has required them to change. They didn't have a choice. Uh, they had to change. And I'm surprised by how many of them, again, most of them have. They've changed and they've adapted and they've figured it out and they've found ways to use technology and to learn how to use technology when they didn't have to before. Uh, and so I'm I'm just continuously humbled by them and grateful to them uh, because had they all thrown in the towel and said, I can't do this, figure it out, food bank. 
we couldn't have done that. We can't take their place. They are invaluable um, you know, to our community, to the community to recognize how important they are uh, and to see the amazing work they're doing, um, I think has been, of all the things I mentioned, the best part. What's one takeaway that you want the general public to have based on all the work that you're doing, whether it was before COVID-19 or during, that you would want them to know about your work uh, in the community? in this time that we're living in now, in the time prior and in the time after, uh, there are community members that need more help than a lot of us recognize uh, that they need. And there are community organizations like the Food Bank that are doing their best to meet that need. Uh, silently, quietly going about uh, our lives in the nonprofit world and, and helping people in ways big and small that aren't noticed and that's fine that we do it in some ways because we don't want it to be noticed we want people to have what they need without worrying about the shame or judgment that comes with them being seen getting it um but i hope that people understand that even after uh you know this crisis is over or when the government starts to open back up we're just seeing for us i think the beginning of this uh, people are going to need food a lot longer uh than when the government opens back up and when everything seems fine again, the long-term ramifications of this point in time are going to ring uh, for months and months, maybe years to come. And so I hope people remember that, um, that the community needs help and that if you're a person that needs the help, I hope you remember that your food bank is here for you uh, to provide food for you as long as you need it. And if you don't need it, I hope that you're grateful uh, that you don't and that you recognize that other people do. And that's why. We exist. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Katie. Really, this was amazing. Well, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate any opportunity that I can get to share more about what we do. We're grateful to do that. Yeah, all of the work that you guys are doing um, at Akron Canton Regional Food Bank is phenomenal uh, and really should be applauded on a daily basis. So, uh, you know, you deserve the recognition. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy Podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan, and my co-host is Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery and supported by the American Political Science Association. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. Join us next time when we talk to Seven Harris from the LGBT Community Center of Cleveland when we talk about creating safe spaces during pandemic.